Eric. Let's begin. Uh, welcome to the Manifesto. I'm your host, Logan. Today, my guest is Mike Morris, MP for Kitchener Center. Hi, Mike. Hi, Logan. Good to be with you this morning. So the first thing I want to talk about is you are the first Green MP elected outside of BC and New Brunswick. You were elected in 2021. Can you talk about the campaign that you ran? Sure, yeah. So uh, it, the audio glitched out there for a second. That uh, I can clarify. I'm the first Green MP in Ontario. And, um, and, and, and yeah, when I, I ran, I, I ran because I was, you know, I spent 10 years uh, trying to get uh, businesses to take action on climate, uh, had made some progress with that. Mm-hmm. but really felt like a lot of what's holding us back on the biggest challenges we face, whether it's wealth inequality or the climate crisis or gaps in mental health supports, comes down to legislation and decisions that are being made by the federal government. Uh, one example was their decision to buy a pipeline uh, back in 2018, uh, days after they agreed to affirm that we are in fact in a climate emergency. And so that all kind of, it felt to me, one analogy I've been using recently is it kind of felt like, you know, we're sho- when, when you shovel snow off the sidewalk, you feel like you're making some progress and the snow plow comes by <laughs> and just like <laughs> undoes everything that you just finished working on. Um, I think that's for me how I felt kind of the positive and negative impact that um, uh, a parliamentarian can have. And it's a, a big part of why I decided to, to run. And, and running as a Green in particular meant that I can focus on being an advocate for my community first and foremost, uh, and, and less of being a, you know, a party spokesperson. But that I really believe that, that our democracy should be prioritized ahead of the politics. Recently, a petition came out of your writing, Kitchener Center, that would grant asylum to trans and non-binary people fleeing prosecution in their persecution in their home countries. Can you talk about that petition and why you championed it? Yeah, for sure. Petitions are a great way to help uh, amplify calls from members of my community mm-hmm. and to make sure that issues get heard. Uh, and in this case, uh, this petition was started by a really incredible longstanding trans uh, advocate uh, in my community. Her name is Caitlin Glasson. And, um, and Caitlin and I were, were speaking last summer about our shared concerns with respect to legislators in some US states and in the UK that are considering or, or have already moved ahead with legislation that would prohibit gender affirming care. And we wanna make sure that Canada continues to be the, you know, the safe place that we want to be known for internationally. And, and so um, Caitlin really is the initiator. I have sponsored it uh, in the House of Commons. Uh, and this would allow for Canada to grant asylum to any trans and non-binary person uh, in jurisdictions like the ones I mentioned uh, that isn't feeling safe. And Canadians have responded. It's, it's the most signed petition of any on the House of Commons website. We're speaking early March. Uh, it's open until late May. Over 30,000 people have now signed on. Only 500 are needed to get it read in the House of Commons. So we've we passed that within a couple hours. 
Um, and I think it helps to demonstrate to the federal government that this is something that they should be thinking about. 30,000 people, that, that is, that's a lot of people to support an, an online petition. That's, that's good numbers. It's, it's wow. actually, it's the, it's the eighth most of any in this entire, you know, since the last federal election. I think it's seventh or eighth now. And if folks who are listening would want to sign on, they can go to mikemorrismp.ca. And there's a, a link to the House of Commons website from, from there if you want to join in, sign on, and share it. Last fall, you attended the UN Climate Change Conference in Egypt. First off, I don't understand why it was in Egypt, of all countries, but baffles me. Can you talk about what's being done regarding climate change here in Canada and across the world? Sure, yeah. To your first point, it, uh, I, I don't have the answer to that question. I guess it's a UN uh, decision-making group that chooses the various locations, and they try to ensure that uh, every continent uh, hosts with a certain regularity. Uh, but it was certainly a bit more difficult having it in Egypt, uh, where public protests not really permitted as compared to Glasgow, Scotland the year before. And I think the important role that protesters have and civil society has in putting pressure on elected leaders to move with the urgency that the crisis demands. Um, in terms of where we're at, um, well, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, the most recent uh, calls from the UN are, are saying we're on, I think the language they're using, we're on the highway to climate hell. We've locked in emissions of 1.1 degrees of warming. 1.5 is a really critical level to avoid um, feedback loops that lead to complete climate breakdown. And uh, the most recent report I saw is globally, we're tracking for about 2.4 degrees. So every country around the world needs to step up, Canada in particular. Um, we're seeing recent numbers that we're starting to bend the curve. But historically, our emissions have actually been going up year over year, as opposed to the opposite direction. And a big part of that is that while there are some um, initiatives in place that are helping, uh, putting a price on pollution as an example, we're continuing to dump $18 billion a year uh, of public money into the very oil and gas companies whose sector is most contributing to the crisis in Canada. Um, and so... Folks like myself, I've got a, a private member's motion, for example, that's calling for an end to all subsidies to oil and gas with no loopholes uh, and to redirect those funds where we need it to the workers who would be impacted, um, to retrofitting buildings that uh, would create jobs across the country. And uh, unfortunately, we're not seeing that getting taken up. And so I can, I give you a quote that I find sums it up really well. Bill McKibben, uh, if he were with you this morning, he would say, when talking about climate, uh, winning slowly is the same as losing. And so we need to move past political parties who are saying my plan is better than yours. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter if your plan is better than other political parties plan. All that matters is we move as quickly as scientists and indigenous leaders and young people are telling us is required to meet the reality of the crisis that we face. I have a question that goes on about, it's like, uh, I can't think of the word, but it does talk about how we can get rid of, or stop using as many as much gas, and it regards trains. Yeah. 
Yeah, we have made a decision. I had an interview with uh, Taylor Bogwag, an MP from... I had an interview with Taylor Bogwag, an MP from BC, and we talked about how you have a good train system in Canada would help people stop using their cars and connect our cities more than they are. What do you think about trains and high-speed trains between, say, Toronto and Quebec City? Well, I think Taylor's a fantastic MP to start with. I'm glad you spoke with him as well, and I just couldn't agree more. In fact, he and I are in a, a rail caucus together of MPs from all parties who are working to advocate uh, for stronger rail uh, transportation across the country. And I'll give you an example that, that you know has some guilt on my part. I live in Kitchener. It's about six hour drive from Ottawa. And uh, there's no good rail connection between Kitchener and Ottawa. And so for my own transportation to and from the House of Commons almost every week, I'm then forced to, uh, to have to fly. Um, for me, driving is not much of an option late at night, six hours on the 401. I don't feel that that's safe for me driving alone. I, I, I fear that I wouldn't be able to stay awake at the wheel. And, um, and what, what an obvious example of, of where rail steps in. Or maybe even a better example is for people in my community who want to get to and from Toronto every day, whether it's going to a Blue Jays game or, or commuting to and from work. Why is it that we have stubbornly refused to build out and invest in high-speed, high-frequency rail? And instead, we seem so focused on uh, you know, adding more lanes to the 401 or expanding out air travel. Um, other reasonable countries around the world have invested in, in rail. It's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. As you're pointing out, transportation is a huge part of our domestic emissions. And, uh, and rail sh- can and should be a bigger part of that solution. And so I'm, I really enjoy working with Taylor as, as one of many MPs in the House. We don't have enough. If we had enough, we'd see better legislation and more investments. Uh, mm-hmm. so we need to continue to build the support for investments in, in electrified rail. Well, I would like... I looked it up yesterday before my interview with Taylor. It takes 21 hours by via to get from Halifax to Montreal. Yeah. You can drive in a 12 and a half. You can fly in an hour and a half. I, met, I, I would love people like, to get to Montreal and Toronto in eight, 10 hours by, by rail. And it, it, would be, it would be delightful, but we, we can't have it because people say we can't. Well, Logan, I, I've done that train trip before from Montreal to Halifax as well. And what it made me think of is, is it seems like we've turned rail in this country into like a tourist kind of thing. Mm-hmm, I agree. Right? You're on vacation. You got a week off. And uh, that means you can spend 21 hours or whatever it is. We did the overnight. Uh, it's a beautiful uh, vacation experience, right? Um, but it's not something that the average person is going to be able uh, to use on a regular basis. And uh, I'm glad you're frustrated about it too. I'm glad you're talking about it with as many MPs as you are, because in a good democracy, that's how we put attention and a spotlight on issues that matter. And this is certainly one of them. A big issue across the country is housing from the big cities to my small town of 1500 people. Housing prices have gone up dramatically since COVID. There's no apartments, and if there are apartments, they're either in bad condition or they cost 
a small fortune. What can the federal government do to ensure that more housing is built, especially affordable housing? So much. Of course, it's all levels of government that need to act on the housing crisis. But federally, let's be honest, they have the most spending power of any level of government. They've got the largest fiscal capacity. And so there's two main areas. One is in spending and the second is in legislation. Back in the early 90s, we had all levels of government retract their spending in things like co-op housing, for example. Mm -hmm. We need to get back into deep, ongoing, renewed investments in affordable, non-market housing. Housing that you and I can count on remaining deeply affordable over the long term. And, and, and not to say that the federal government's doing nothing. Um, there was an investment in last year's budget uh, well, for the first time coming back to co-ops, not at the rate we used to be at at the 80s, but it was a start. Um, there is a, a fund uh, called the Rapid Housing Initiative uh, that is providing $1.5 billion this year. But as an example, it's not a permanent fund. So when nonprofits in my community are looking to plan out building more housing, we have no idea when the next round of rapid housing is going to be, for example. So it's not nearly enough. It's not nearly predictable enough. Um, and then the other side is legislation. We've got to shift the market to be one where homes are places for people to live and not commodities for investors to trade. Yeah. And that to me is the big difference we've seen over, I can say over my lifetime. I think I was born in the 80s when, when my parents were looking at buying their first home. They weren't competing with large corporate investors who were treating homes like stocks. <laughs> they were competing with other people. And so uh, as an example, my team and I have listened to calls uh, from civil society organizations who one of the incentives that these large corporate investors have is not paying their taxes. And so we've got a motion calling for one type of corporate investor, real estate investment trusts, trust. or REITs for short, who are not building new housing. They're buying up existing units. Uh, they are then renovating, evicting, and raising rents to get the highest return possible, leading towards what you're saying in terms of them looking around and saying, wow, I can't afford any of this. And uh, what we're saying is just close, close the loophole. Have them pay their regular corporate taxes like anybody else. And with the money we would raise from that new tax revenue, why don't we put it into the housing we do need and uh, give it to the not-for-profits that are looking to build that housing and aren't getting enough of that funding? Um, so those are the kinds of investments and, and, and legislative changes that I think would help reorient the market back towards one that prioritizes homes for people. But Logan, let me affirm for you whether... You know, from your part of the country to mine, in my community, homelessness has tripled in the last yeah. three years. From over 300 to, to over 1,000 people now living unsheltered. That is unacceptable. And if we're going to say, if our politicians are going to say that housing is a human right, well, then they should act like it. Yeah, I, I, I know... Here in St. John, there's always been homeless people, but there have been more over the since COVID hit because investors from Ontario and Alberta and BC are coming in, buying apartment buildings and jacking the rent up to what they would get in their part of the country, which people here can't afford. Yep, 
Exactly. And this is happening right across the country. So when it's got an impact Canada-wide, well, it needs a Canada-wide solution. And that's where the federal government can and should be stepping up. Um, another thing that about the feds is Rogers and Shaw all have proposed a merger. And I, I see that you are against a merger, saying that it would eliminate competition and hurt the consumers. Can you talk about why you're against the merger? Yeah, well, you, you really it doesn't take too much explanation, Logan. That as you've said, uh, that's what we're calling out. It's what uh, many my my positions are informed, uh, sure, by my values and by what I'm hearing from folks in my community. And there's a lot of people here in Kitchener who are really concerned as all of our cell phone bills continue to go up. Why would we allow for cons- continued consolidation? of some of the largest players. I guess the question we can ask is who's going to benefit from this? And I have not seen a sufficient case that anyone besides the shareholders of the companies being merged are going to benefit. And so if it's not going to benefit people in my community, if it's only going to benefit those shareholders, Mm -hmm. then we need to push back against it. And not only push back, but offer up other ideas. And this is where I think SaskTel in Saskatchewan can help us look at why is there not a conversation about nationalizing telecoms in this country? If you look at what SaskTel's been able to do, when you take the profit motive out, there's more incentive to make sure that communities, that folks in communities like yours, Logan, have good access in rural rural communities to telecom services, that it's as low priced as possible. And so, you might have also seen, I've also been calling to at least start that conversation, to explore it, to do the research, to say, we've seen a province go down this road. Uh, could the federal government consider doing the same? I, I think that would be a far better consideration than, uh, than allowing for more consolidation in an already fairly low competition sector. Yeah. Um, an example for me is... I live, as I said, middle of nowhere, and we had access to two internet providers, Bell and Rogers. Need no, no, just Bell. We had no one else besides Bell. The internet was cost of fortune, was not good at all because there was no other competition for them. They could charge what they wanted and give you however slow internet they wanted to give you. It was. That's it. Right? Without competition, there's less incentive to actually serve the interests and needs of people. Mm -hmm. And so I I just believe in in getting more options for people and having government play a role to make sure that that service is as cheap and as reliable as possible. The healthcare system across the entire country is in shambles. Especially in Ontario, where Doug Ford seems to be inching towards privatized, more privatization in the system. What can the feds do? Well, first of all, help fund the healthcare system and to prevent more privatization. Yeah, no, that's such a good question, Logan. Um, the, the, the first and most important is, is, is making sure there are clear conditions attached that lo- align with the Canada Health Act with respect to the the funding that's being provided to provinces and territories across the country. 
Um, and so that means enforcing the Canada Health Act. Mm-hmm. It might also mean closing some loopholes in the Canada Health Act. So an example of that is in Ontario, uh, you know, you, you're, of course, you can't charge for-profit uh, two-tier uh, to see a doctor. But if that doctor's out of province, the way a company called Maple is setting it up for virtual visits, well, then that's a loophole. And uh, we're seeing that start to happen. And an, op- an option for you to be charged to see a doctor virtually. And so did the, f- the folks who were writing the Canada Health Act expect that? Probably not. Um, and so uh, I really admire other MPs like Don uh, Davies, who's, I've been working on this for a long time. My colleague Elizabeth is another. Um, and I think we should be listening to their wisdom um, as long-standing parliamentarians who've been calling out to close some of these loopholes and to ensure we tie the funding to very strict conditions. So, of course, there's a lot here that is, is provincial jurisdiction, mm-hmm. but having more leadership federally on this to uh, ensure that we close those loopholes, that we attach strict conditions, and that uh, we make clear that for-profit healthcare is not innovation. That, that we demand and expect universal public health care. And if, if anything, we need to be expanding public health care, like dental care, for example, like dedicated funding for mental health care. I'd, I'd rather see a national conversation putting more pressure on following through on a really important commitment that the governing party made to a dedicated Canada mental health transfer, as opposed to uh, this talk about uh, private clinics. I guess a shorter way to say it, Logan, is the best way to improve our public health care system isn't by investing in private clinics. It's by investing in our public health care system and making sure that our best people stay there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I interviewed a green MLA here in New Brunswick two weeks ago at Kevin Arsenal. Something that he said has stuck with me that the government is bringing in private nurses multiple times what the public nurses are. Why would you want to be a public nurse and you can be a travel nurse and make double, triple your salary? That's exactly it. It's about incentives, right? We need to make sure that at the provincial and federal levels, incentives are in place to protect, uphold, and invest in public health care. Um, Canada is still very reliant on fossil fuels too for energy needs. How can we as a country step away from fossil fuels and invest renewable energy such as wind, solar, hydro, and um, and also do you support nuclear power as an alternative? Yeah, so great questions. It goes to this simple idea, and I appreciate the way you framed the question. We're not turning off the taps tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to make this transition, we need to incentivize that transition, as opposed to the way we're doing it right now, which is incentivizing the continuation of more of the same, or incentivizing false climate solutions, like so-called carbon capture and storage, which is this unproven technology 
when tried globally, more often than not, emissions have gone up as opposed to down. Mm -hmm. And yet in last year's budget, the biggest ticket item in our emissions reduction plan is a tax credit to oil and gas companies to, to, to implement so-called carbon capture and storage. It's a pipe dream, as opposed to investing in incentives for Canadians to complete deep energy retrofits in their homes and all the jobs we can create by doing that. Mm -hmm. So I think as a starting point in the conversation, we're not being honest if we're not ending all the subsidies that uh, continue to, um, to, to protect the interests of the fossil fuel sector and rather use it to what, you know, every environmental nonprofit in the country has been calling for. There's a group actually called the Green Budget Coalition. I think if we just go to greenbudget.ca, you'll see their long list of very clear recommendations for how we could be reinvesting those funds in the economy of the future. You asked about nuclear as well. And for me, I'm kind of agnostic to any one, uh, any one source in the energy mix. I'm looking at what is the the options with an S that are the most uh, cost effective and uh, easy to implement as soon as possible. Um, this goes back to that same point from Bill McKibben about winning slowly is the same as losing. Uh, and so I am interested in seeing our federal government invest in the energy solutions that have the uh, cheapest GHG reduction per kilowatt hour. Um, and I can tell you in Ontario, that would be buying hydro from Quebec, for example, at five cents a kilowatt hour and building up the transmission line capacity to, uh, to, to see provinces uh, share um, uh, in that in that way, we're not really good at trading beer and wine. Or we're not good at uh, trading when it comes to energy either. And I think that needs to be addressed. And nuclear would be one to be considered in that mix. And if mm -hmm. there's a nuclear option that is that lowest cost and cheapest option, uh, then it could be considered. In Ontario, that's not the case. Um, but uh, that's, to me, I try to stay... Um, more focused on the characteristics and accepting of any energy um, option that, that meets those characteristics. Uh, last, I think, I believe it was December, you had amendments added to the Canadian Disability Benefits Act. Can you talk about those amendments that you supported that were added to the bill? Well, yeah, thanks for asking, Logan. It, um, when I think about my time as an MP to date, this is probably where I feel like I've been able to most effectively have my community's voice heard. Mm -hmm. um, the Canada Disability Benefit is a guaranteed income for people with disabilities supplementing insufficient provincial and territorial programs that are legislating people into poverty. Yeah. So in New Brunswick, I don't know uh, the specific dollar am amount uh, for uh, disability supports in your province. I know them here in Ontario. Ontario Disability Support Program is less than $1,200 a month. And that's well below the poverty line. Yeah. What kind of country are we if we're allowing people with disabilities to live in legislated poverty? 40% of people living in poverty have a disability. You want to cut poverty? Give people with disabilities a guaranteed income. Mm -hmm. 
And so, yes, I was uh, very active working with civil society groups like Disability Without Poverty in pushing the federal government to fast track legislation for the disability benefit. Uh, and then also in proposing improvements to the bill based on what we heard from the disability community. Uh, and and I, I'm very grateful that other MPs supported improvements that I'd proposed. Uh, five of the nine improvements that were accepted by the committee were ones that I'd brought forward. Uh, and and they're, they're, they're going to serve the interests of people with disabilities in my community and across the country. Uh, things like making sure that the, that the Canada Disability Benefit will be indexed to inflation, while ODSP is not. And so a person with a disability keeps falling further and further behind if we don't ensure that their benefits are indexed to inflation. Uh, there's, of course, many decisions still to be made in regulation, so the fight isn't over yet. It hasn't been funded by the federal government yet. So you know, one call to action for, for listeners is if, if they want to support and uh, be an ally to the disability community, listen to what they're calling for. And one of those things is the disability benefit. Email your MP and let them know that you want them advocating for the disability benefit to be funded in budget 2023. And if you don't know your MP's email address, I can just share it with you right now. It's their first name, a period, and then their last name, the at symbol, P-A-R-L as in parliament dot G-C as in government of Canada dot C-A. Um, and so, Logan, we've made some progress. Uh, I'm proud of the amendments we, we did get passed, uh, but uh, there's still a lot of work to do to get it funded, to get it through the regulations, because the fact is nothing has changed for a person with a disability today versus yesterday, and it won't un until we, we get checks out the door to people um, and so I can share more. There's some concerns with things that didn't get through, but on the whole, we're, we're making progress. I'm hoping it's going to be in place before the next federal election. And uh, our best chance of ensuring that to be true is by advocating collectively alongside and amplifying the voices of people with disabilities across the country. I, I don't know the exact dollar amount for disability benefits here in New Brunswick, but I do know it is low. It is it's disgusting, right? Yeah, there's not a, there's not a province or territory in the country whose current disability supports are above the poverty line. And so that's where the disability benefit will step in to lift up. We have to make sure that nothing gets clawed back. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of agreements that need to be signed with provinces and territories. There's a lot of work still to do. Uh, but what we know is that there's a, this, is, this is a national embarrassment that people with disabilities are living in legislated poverty. There is clear solutions, and we need to push elected people to, uh, to put them in place. You mentioned you, want it, you hope it's enacted before the next federal election. Do you think the prime minister will call an early election before 2025? <laughs> well, uh, like you, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, but 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 I, I do sit in the House of Commons um, uh, most most days, and so I can tell you from what I hear and see there with the level of toxicity, I would not be surprised to see it called okay. earlier. Um, I see some of the fractures between political parties. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's in Canadians' best interest to 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 follow through on um, on on meeting their needs as through the last election. I, I don't think people in my community want an election anytime soon. 
And so I, I'm keen to just continue keeping my head down and doing, doing the work. Uh, but I, you know, based on what I'm seeing, I, I wouldn't expect it to go all the way through to 2025. That's not usually the case in a minority anyhow. Um, but uh, I'm just going to keep working hard for, 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 for my neighbors in Kitchener for as long as I get a chance to do it. Uh, a question I like to ask all the people I interview is, do you support changing electoral system away from first past the first? Oh, gosh, every day of the week, a hundred times <laughs> over. <laughs> I'm glad you're asking it because we're not going to solve, you know, why is it that we don't have more climate champions in Ottawa? Well, part of the reason is that uh, Canadians expect better, but the mm-hmm. way we elect people doesn't have that reflected. If we want a more, um, a more democratic uh, approach where every vote counts, that is more collaborative, it's more diverse, uh, we've got to move past first past the post. And in fact, I've actually got a motion on calling for a citizen's assembly uh, for electoral reform, um, working in partnership with Fair Vote Canada. Um, uh, every MP in the country is open to joint seconding that motion. And so if you or others listening uh, want to support uh, electoral reform, you can consider reaching out to your MP to have them uh, support this particular motion. Uh, and then even more importantly, connecting with Fair Vote Canada and their chapters across the country um, to, to join in that organizing and, uh, and work together to keep the pressure on. I've, the number I saw is the prime, prime Minister promised over 1,800 times in the 2015 election uh, that that would be the last one uh, of first past the post. And uh, as you and I both know, uh, that didn't prove to be true. So we got to keep pushing. A question I want to ask you, and I asked one, I asked to Taylor yesterday, did you support uh, his private bill, Bill C-210, which, which would have lowered voting age in Canada to 16? I didn't just support it, Logan. I joined Taylor on Instagram lives at rallies. <laughs> we, I just really appreciate him for it. You know, he had to win a lottery to be one of the first to have a chance to bring a private member's bill forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only did he win the lottery, but then he chose vote 16 as, uh, as, as his priority. Uh, and this is, this is legislation that's seen support across party lines. We've seen Liberal MPs champion it. Uh, Elizabeth May from the Green Party has brought forward legislation like, like this before. The NDP, of course, have too. Um, and uh, I was disappointed not to see it even get uh, past second reading to go to committee. Uh, for those that want to continue to push, there's a similar bill in the Senate right now. So the movement continues to make sure that young people have a direct voice in their democracy folks can go to vote16.ca. It's bigger than Taylor. It's bigger than myself. It's a movement of people across the country who are calling for young people to, uh, to, 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 to more have their voices heard. And, and reducing the voting age to 16 is something I think is long past its time. And eventually we'll get there. We're just not there yet. One of my final questions for you is, what does the future hold for you? Do you plan on running for re-election whenever the next election happens to be? Yeah, good question, Logan. Um, I think what's true for me is I want to do, as I shared earlier, kind of as, as much good as I can for as long as I can. And I think about often, where can I be making the greatest impact with my time? 
And if I think about what we've done with the disability benefit as one example, there's nothing else I can be doing with my time right now that feels like it has a greater positive impact on my community. And so um, I'm really enjoying, uh, it feels like a privilege to be getting to do this right now. I'm intending at this point uh, to run again. Uh, but the other side of it too, is it's a pretty toxic place to spend time. Uh, the mm -hmm. partisanship can be um, difficult at times. And so I do have difficult days too, and, and those uh, I'm mindful of, but as of right now, I'm intending on it. Uh, my final question is, the Russian invasion of Ukraine just passed a one-year mark, I believe last week. Do you yeah. continue to support Ukraine and the government sending them funds and equipment? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. We, we just had a vigil here downtown Kitchener last Friday uh, where I got to yeah. hear directly from Ukrainian Canadians in my community mm -hmm. who um, you know, have loved ones in Ukraine. And they're telling me how they feel numb from the impact of this illegal invasion. And, uh, and not just that, when it, but we also, I also feel we need to be doing more when it comes to economic sanctions. Um, that if the sanctions were working, we would see Russia's economy uh, declining. Yeah. And that's part of efforts to end this illegal invasion. And we're not seeing that happen. And so Canada, alongside other, other countries, I believe, does need to do more when it comes to not just putting in place sanctions, but enforcing them, working with our allies to see them continue to ratchet them up also. Uh, more has to be done in a variety of areas. That's, that's all the questions I have. Do you want to say anything to the people listening? Well, no, just a thanks to you, Logan. You, this has been such a, uh, a wonderful cross-section of topics you've covered. And uh, I think it's really important that we have MPs uh, participate in, in, this, in this kind of a way. And it only happens when someone like you uh, puts the request out to MPs from different parties. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate you for inviting me on. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and, and to your listeners uh, for listening in and, and being as tuned in as they are to our democracy. I think it's so important that, uh, that people are aware of some of the issues and uh, priorities that you've brought up, many of which reflect some of the top priorities of my neighbors in Kitchener. So uh, I guess a long-winded way of saying thank you. I uh, really appreciate the chance to chat with you this morning and uh, maybe we can do it again sometime soon. Well, Micah, thanks for taking time to do this. It's, this was a great, great conversation. And I might take you up on the let's do this again sometime. You let me know. <laughs> we don't know what will happen in the next few months in Canada. It's unpredictable. Yeah, there's also 337 other MPs to be chatting with. So uh, I hope you have lots of other really good conversations, both with provincial and elected uh, folks uh, federally, too. Logan, thank you again. Take care. Thanks, Mike. Have a good day.